Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. We're going to be opening up Matthew chapter 21 today. We're going to be looking at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem because this is the beginning of Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday, and we're going to look at the moment where Jesus initiates the last week of his life. And to get into this passage, I want to give us a little bit of background so we can, kind of, we can understand some of the, uh, the climate, the atmosphere that this whole scene happens in. So number one, this is happening on March 29th, 33 AD. It's Sunday morning, it's early, and Jesus gets up and he asks his disciples to go into town and find a donkey and bring it to him. And as he's riding in, he's going in with a lot of excitement because he raised Lazarus from the dead. If you go to John's gospel, you're going to see that Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead happens really close to this whole scene when he rides into Jerusalem. That's important because news about Lazarus' resurrection has gone before him. And people are excited and they, they've heard the buzz that Jesus is coming, the one who raises people from the dead. So there's a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement, a lot of curiosity, and also a lot of, a lot of stress. The religious leaders are stressed and upset that people are turning to Jesus and believing in him in mass. And so while Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, what we need to understand is Jesus up to now has been in hiding. He's been kind of hiding himself because the religious leaders have sort of put out a bounty on his head. They've been asking people to report to him where Jesus is because they want to arrest him and they want to try to quench the building momentum around Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem. They know this is a big moment. Unfortunately, they just don't understand its true significance. Another thing is that it's almost Passover. That's important because the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem actually is the day that the people of Israel are selecting their Passover lamb. Now, when they would select their Passover lamb, they would take that lamb and they would bring it into their home. And for four days, they would have that lamb with them before they would sacrifice the lamb. That's significant because as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he's going to stay in Jerusalem about the same amount of time, about four days. And then on the fifth day, he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be crucified. The other thing that's important to understand about this is that when Jesus rides in, he's been hiding himself, as I said earlier, but he's been hiding his identity. He's been not really open about the fact that he is the Messiah. And so Although people are spreading the rumors that he could be the Messiah, he himself has not definitively taken a stand that that he really is the Messiah and that he is the King of Israel. Now, with all that being said, I think we can understand and appreciate what he's about to do. So I want to open the passage to us. Again, Matthew 21, um, beginning in verse 1, it says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to his daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt the foal of a donkey. This prophecy comes from Zechariah 9.9. And that's really important because at this moment, Jesus is being really deliberate and intentional about what he's doing. This is not just a, uh, he doesn't get a donkey just for convenience or because he's tired. Because in this moment, he's trying to signal to the crowd 
finally this, who he really truly is. They've been asking him, who are you? And in this symbolic gesture, he's letting them know who he really is. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, John tells us that those branches are also palm fronds. So you'll see all the palm fronds behind us. And it's why we call it Palm Sunday. Because in this moment, people are waving their palm fronds in celebration. And they're also laying it on the ground, kind of like a red carpet. The crowds went ahead of him. And those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Verse 15 But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, they too started to praise Jesus. Not exactly. If you go to verse 15, you'll see that when they see all this and they hear the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, it says that they were indignant. Do you hear what these people and these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you Lord? have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Have you ever had a moment in your life where someone assumed an authority over you that you weren't comfortable with or that was offensive or frustrating or stifling? I remember one time uh, I did that to my wife. We were just married and well, I'm her husband. And I don't know, I, I feel like I have the the biggest invested interest in what she looks like. I know this is going to sound crazy to you, but I literally did this. We were going somewhere and she came out and I kind of looked at her and I was like, eh, I don't think that's the right dress for you. And she was just absolutely aghast. She couldn't believe it. She looked at me and she's like, how, or how dare you make comment on what I'm wearing or what gives you the right to now, you know, tell me how I should dress. And I kind of felt like, well, I kind of have every right. I'm your husband, right? I mean, I'm the one looking at you. Who else are you dressing for? Which is kind of a stupid thing to say. And I know that now after 19 years of marriage. But at the time, I assumed an authority or and a right to give opinion where it wasn't being asked. And now that's just a funny, silly one. But in all seriousness, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he is assuming an authority over so many different areas of life that people are both, yeah, excited, but they're, I think they're unsettled. And as we look at the Pharisees, they're downright offended and threatened by what he's doing. So I want to review to you, with you a couple of the key areas of authority that Jesus takes. First, he takes authority over our possessions. When he's going into Jerusalem, he sends the disciples ahead of him to go and get these, this donkey, and it says like a colt, right? The, a baby donkey. Because Jesus wants to ride it on a donkey that has never been ridden on. 
Now, it's not just any donkey. It's not the donkey of one of the disciples. It's the donkey that belongs to somebody else. And so when he goes there, he tells them, if someone stops, you tell them that the master's asked for it. And literally, when they go and get the, the, the donkey in the, in the colt, uh, they literally stop him and go, what gives you the right to take those animals? And they say the master needs them. And that's enough for them, and they let it go. So Jesus also takes authority over the temple, over the place that people worship. He walks in there and assumes this authority and he starts to clear out the temple to overturn the tables and starts telling the people of Israel and the religious leaders how they should be worshiping. What's so important about this moment is he assumes the authority to drive out the distractions and show us how we should worship and engage with God. Thirdly, he assumes authority over us physically not just spiritually, not just our possessions, but over our, even our very bodies. So what he does next is he brings in the blind and the lame, which is really significant because prior to this time, the blind and lame were considered unclean and they weren't welcome in the temple. But Jesus flips all that upside down and he welcomes them in. But not only does he welcome them in, but he claims an authority to heal them. And he heals every person who's blind and lame and broken he assumes the authority to heal our deepest hurts. And then thirdly, or fourthly, he assumes authority over our allegiance and over our hearts. This is seen where the, the, the Pharisees or the, actually the scribes and the chief priests are really upset with Jesus because people are praising him and worshiping him and he's just receiving it. And he's not, um, he's not saying, oh, no, no, that's for God alone as we might often do, you know, no, don't praise me, only God. Instead, he actually quotes Psalm 8 when he, right here. And this is a Psalm about God himself. And he says, from the lips of children and infants, you Lord have called forth your praise. He's receiving praise that really belonged to God alone. And so here Jesus assumes an authority to have a place of allegiance and worship in our lives that is absolutely unprecedented for any human to claim. Now, like I said, people in this scene are both, they're excited. So you see people celebrating Hosanna. Um, you see some people confused and maybe even uncomfortable as he overturns the money tables. There's other responses to his authority, maybe gratitude, right? If you were healed, you might have been grateful that Jesus took that authority over your life and healed your body. Maybe, you know, you might even relate to some of these people. Maybe you relate to the Pharisees. Maybe there have been moments in your life where you've felt threatened, uncomfortable, or offended by Jesus' authority and claim of authority in your life over the allegiance of your life and what should be most important to you. Jesus claims to be so important. Earlier in the Gospels, he says, um, he wants to be more important than your mother, your father, your spouse, your children, your careers, your possessions. That's huge. With that claim of authority comes um, a response from us. We need to respond to that. Now, like I said, you see all kinds of different responses to Jesus. And I want to invite Nick and Kelly to join us to help us explore um, how we respond to that claim of authority over every area of our life and where we might be needing to respond to Jesus's authority in our life. Um, but in particular, before we go there, there's two responses I see. Uh, one, we can respond with 
Um, who do you think you are, Jesus? What gives you the right to have that authority in my life over my possessions, over my spiritual life, over my relationships, over my, over my body, over my heart? The, the other response is surrender. Now, that's a big word. That's an important one. Because I think that's, what, that's exactly what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for us to surrender our whole life to him. And so to understand maybe what it looks like when we get stuck, offended, and holding Jesus at bay, like, who do you think you are? Or what it looks like for us to surrender to him, I want to invite Nick and Kelly to get into this conversation so we can discuss this together. Hey, Nick and Kelly, thanks for joining us and exploring this passage a little more deeply. Um, we've been looking at this passage with Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and his uh, claim and use of authority. And so I want to explore a little bit more uh, how he uses his authority in that passage to help us reflect on how we respond to that authority. So Kelly, I want to start with you. And I just want to ask you a question to kind of get us started. What, what grabs you about the way that Jesus claims and uses authority in this whole scene? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think he uses authority in different ways in different times throughout the whole passage. But to even start further back in his journey to Jerusalem, um, he's with his disciples in Matthew 20, talking to them about the, the best leader is the one who serves. And he specifically says that I came to serve and not to be served. And that, in essence, is a, a subversive way to have authority. That's a really powerful. I know earlier you read that from the Bible. Can you just read that for us so yeah, we can hear it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so this is right before he comes into the city. He does this teaching on authority, right? Yeah, so the mother of the sons of Zebedee asks basically for his, her two sons to sit at the right hand of Jesus. Mm. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is clearly stating to his disciples that he came to serve and not to be served. And then immediately after that, he heals two blind men. And so that's on the journey to Jerusalem. And so I would say the journey to Jerusalem and through Jerusalem is he is mm. still caring for those um, that need care. He's having compassion. He's caring for the outcasts. And they're you know, crying out for him and he's not neglecting them, even though he's going to his death. And so it's just evident that he is continuing to show love and compassion, even though he's going to his imminent death, where he's, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be crucified, yet he still knows his mission while he's on earth is still to show God's love to people. That's so insightful. He uses his authority in a time when his life is on the line, he's vulnerable. And rather than using that authority to force people into submission, he uses it to serve people. And what's so beautiful is that even under the most intense pressure, he is faithful to what he teaches and he says himself. Yeah. He practices what he preaches. And we see that here. That's yeah. so good. That's so good. And I think what challenges me in that is like, am I willing to love people even though I know I'm going to be betrayed? Or am I willing to care for people or have compassion for people, even yeah. though they're probably going to reject me. And Jesus knew that. I think that's radical love of Christ is saying, I'm going to love you no matter what you do to me because I'm so secure in who I am. And I know God loves me and I know he's called me to do something and I'm going to be obedient to that, even if I have to suffer. 
So I think that's a radical love that I'm challenged by, inspired by, convicted by. Um, it's, it's a love out of this world, right? It's not caring for ourselves first, but it's caring for others. Yeah, so this other idea, one, does, you said to serve. He uses authority to, to express radical love, the radical love of God. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really insightful. Nick, you want to build on that? Well, just to agree, I think it's a great point, Kel. Like, if you look at Holy Week, in fact, if you look at Jesus' life uh, in its entirety, it, it's comprised of, of suffering, servanthood, and sovereignty. This passage starts, Jesus starts out at the Mount of Olives. And we know, because we're reading backwards into the text from our vantage point in history, we know what's going to happen there a week from this time when he's coming in. Mm. That's Gethsemane. That's a place where he's under enormous anguish, so much, the, so much anguish that blood comes out of his brow. Um, he knows what he's going to. So it's like this foreshadowing of uh, the, the toughness of the week that's coming, yeah. uh, what's going to come at the end of the week for him. Uh, but yeah, you're right, he comes in and it's, he, he, he acts with authority. He, he doesn't just assume authority, though he does assume authority, not just over the donkey and so on, but in the way that he's, the procession happens, he enters as a king. There's no question any Jewish person uh, seeing this, they would all of them understand the symbology of it. This is the returning king. Yeah. And, um, and they would all see uh, that authority. Um, Can I ask you about that? Yeah. I, um, I didn't touch on this earlier when I was talking about the passage myself. And um, why does Jesus choose the, the donkey specifically? Yeah, one, it fulfills scripture, but it's not the kind of animal, you know, you think of for a for a, a a conquering king to kind of come in on, who wants to show everybody that he really has what it takes to be king. That's right. We think of a dashing white steed, yeah. that Alexander the Great. Yeah, donkey's uh, kind of a lame animal. Well, lame, I guess. <laughs> I don't but, know. You know what I mean? It's not like also, a, not impressive. <laughs> not impressive. But, you know, uh, utilitarian, faithful, the pack animals of the Middle East, like they're kind of, in a funny sort of way, they're like the, the ultimate, you know... Um, uh, symbol for for servanthood that they exist under yeah. under pressure, you know, and so on. Yeah. Well, uh, that's really powerful because mm. even in his choice of how he rides into Jerusalem, he's communicating to me about the kind of authority he's bringing in. It's a it's a ser- it's an authority to serve, right? And um, to build up the you know the downcast and the broken. That's right. It's the well worn image of the of the returning king, and so many of the things that Jesus does. It's it's expectations but subverted a little bit. It's what I thought he was going to be, and yet he's, he's different than I thought he was going to be. And I think that is kind of indicative is, of his life. What exactly is subversive here? What, how, what is Jesus subverting in their expectation of his kind of leadership? Well, I mean, you know, first century Judaism had uh, so many people were longing and waiting for the Messiah. They, they had a different understanding of, of how that would kind of manifest, how he would come. Uh, many of them, most of them, I think, even uh, would have thought of him as the all-conquering hero, hero who would ride in on a on a big gallant steed, would best the Romans, vanquish the Romans, and save them. Some of them had more of a view of him being uh, like a sort of super duper holy guy, the guy who would live by all of the the statutes of the law. The Pharisees were of that regard, and so they would live legalistically, and they'd think that he'd be the personification of someone who would abide by all of those. 
Um, so, you know, you've got the Zealots, you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees who are more into sort of power, worldly use of power. Maybe he'll come in as like a, an uber-politician who would know how to rule the, uh, the known world in that way. You know, the Essenes who thought, no, he'll be like some ascetic off in the desert, some sort of holy man. So he was kind of the, the pincushion for a lot of different hopes. But Jesus comes in, and he does come in riding on a steed, but it's not a gallant, huge horse. It's yeah. a donkey. Yeah. He does come in, and he doesn't abide by the temple customs. He kind of says, actually, some of what you're doing is wrong. And I know we're going to get to that, but he, he, he subverts things, you know, and I think Jesus does it. He certainly does that in my life too. Yeah. Mm. So I like your point that Jesus uses his authority, but in a way that's subversive. It subverts some, the way we expect him to move in our life the way we expect him to act and doesn't always move and act the way we want. I mean, normally we want him to act in a way that's fashioned out of, out of our own preferences, our own personality, our own style. God created us in his image. And ever since then, we've been trying to return the favor. Okay. Like we create God in our image, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that. That's Mm. that's insightful. Like Kelly, let's go back to the donkey thing. I just, before we move on, you were saying something about the symbolism, him riding on the donkey. Yeah. I think what Nick uh, touched on it too, but the, just the steadfastness of uh, the donkey, what it resembles, um, and it, how it's a servant. And so I looked it up in the Greek. I'll read uh, 21.5. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, mm. on a colt, the fowl of a beast mm. of burden. Most translations say, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And obviously, repeating something twice, um, it draws your attention to that. But the fowl of a beast is actually what it means in Greek. And so the beast of burden, and I found it ironic that Jesus is riding in on a donkey and it's called the beast of burden. And it's the way I took it. And it's a symbolism of how Jesus is going to take all of our burdens, all the sin, everything on the cross. Um, He's carrying all of our burdens and it's foreshadowing what he's going to do on the cross. And I think sometimes we can miss that. And obviously donkey is coming in humble and um, in peace, but, I think it's even more than that. It's saying, I'm going to take the harder route for you to have a, a way to eternal life. Okay, so there's another insight. Nick, did you want to say something? Oh, only it. just that. Um, I, I think Kelly's nailed it. Um, we, we must pause for a second, though, and remember, this passage absolutely, authoritatively, categorically points to the authority of Jesus. Yeah. Like the actions that he takes um, in the temple by healing people, by allowing them to to praise him in that manner, you know. And um, I was just thinking that, that Jesus' authority is, I mean, it's, it's something that is absolute. A friend of mine uh, used to say that uh, all of us are going to end up on our face before Jesus. He just would joke and say, so I'm just going to do it now rather than later on. But, you know, in, uh, is it Philippians 2, um, you know, it says God exalted him, God the Father exalted Christ to the highest place, and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth Mm. and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So all of us, whether we are in a a lordship place with him now or not, all of us uh, are going to uh, admit to the lordship and the authority of Christ, right? Yeah. Um, whether it's on this side of the river or the other side of the river. And, and I don't want to get to the other side because that has bad consequences attached to it. Um, but his authority is absolute. The way he acts here 
it's, uh, it shows that he truly is um, God incarnate, God in the flesh. So let me build on that for a mm. second. So his authority is absolute. And to go back to what I was saying earlier in, the, in my message, uh, we see four, at least four specific areas of authority that he claimed. Authority over possessions with the donkey, right? Uh, number two, authority to drive out distraction from our, the intimate places of our life. He goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers. Authority to heal our deepest hurts and authority to inspire our deepest allegiance and worship. Okay, so you just see the totality of everything in that. And what I love about this, what you're saying, Nick, is that this is for everybody, that he's, wants, he's claiming this authority, not just over first century Israel and Jews, but, but over all humanity, over the entire world. And um, that's really significant. And you know, in, in that moment, I want to just ask you guys a pers- to maybe share personally, where in your life personally have you surrendered yourself to Jesus' authority? I want to help people who are listening uh, to maybe be able to locate opportunities in their own life where th- they have a chance to surrender to Jesus' authority for themselves personally. So we, who wants to go first? Anyone want to share a personal example of surrender? You want to go, Kel? Sure, I'll go. All right. Um, I think... Uh we're always surrendering. I think we're always um, constantly having to surrender, give back um, things that we've taken up that aren't ours to take up. Um, I'll share one about, it was pretty pivotal in my, in my Christian walk and coming back to Jesus. So it's about drinking. Um, not saying drinking's bad by any means, but for me, it became, it became a distraction and talking about driving out distractions in the temple. Drinking was that for me. So Mm. I drank from a, a, pretty young age. And, um, I had my fair share of parties in college and I was working in finance in New York city. And so drinking was what you did. And if you did it well, you could hang, you can hang with the guys, you can hang in with clients, you can hang in the the banking industry. And so, um, I was prepared for that. I was ready to go, but, um, it was also in that season where God was stripping away the things that I was distracted with, whether it's money, whether it was, um, relationships, whether it was groups, whether, you know, friends, whatever it was. Um, but drinking had always been a thing for me. It always had a hold on me. And I didn't really admit that till later on. Um, because I was like, oh, I'm just doing what everyone else is doing. Everyone in high school is drinking. Everyone in college is drinking. Everyone in finance is drinking. Like I'm definitely not the worst by any means. And, um, but I just had too many bad experiences. I had too many nights or days of shame and guilt and, Mm. and pain. And that I just, kept going back in the same cycles. And um, that's where the enemy was able to get into my life really easily. And so I tried to quit multiple times. I've had, you know, many conversations about giving up drinking, but it wasn't until God's like, I need need you to give it up once and for all. And I was 24 living in New York City. and, And that's like kind of in the last place you would stop drinking is where I stopped drinking. Um, for four plus years and I gave it up completely. And I just had, I just felt like God gave me a grace to do that too. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't white knuckling it. It wasn't trying in my own strength, but I was being obedient to what God asked me to do. And so I was able to say no to drinking. Um, and it really opened up my life to really receive what God had for me, which was a calling into ministry out of finance. And it just opened the doors to so many things because I was willing to lay down one thing that was holding me back. And it may not, it wasn't just one thing that was the tip of the iceberg. 
Jesus' authority in your life was demonstrated, in two, it, seems in, it seems, in two ways. One, he was driving out this habit out of your life. He, mm-hmm. he claimed a right to change your lifestyle yeah. and with alcohol. And I think it, it seems that from your story that that escalated. When you opened that door to Jesus to have authority over the role of alcohol in your life, that it opened a door to a, uh, an even bigger change I don't know if it was bigger, but a, a big change where he actually called you out of that line of work altogether. Yeah. And he called you into full-time ministry. He called you from, from the East Coast all the way back here to the West Coast. Where I, if I remember correctly from your story, when we've talked in the past, it was like maybe the last place you wanted to go was come back here. Yep. I mean, that's a <laughs> lot of authority that Jesus claimed over your life. And it's a beautiful picture of surrendering yeah. to him. I think when we think of surrendering to Jesus, it feels... I don't know, I think it can be scary. It can feel negative. Like we can get focused on what we have to give up. But I can see in your story that rather than it just being something you're giving up, you're gaining. What exactly do you think that you gained through that surrender to him? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I I think it's not necessarily the fear of giving up something always. I think it's Mm -hmm. the fear of the unknown. Like if I give this up, what is God going to do or what's on the other side or can I really release it? Because we're so used to clinging to things we know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, what does, if this is my whole life, what does a new, lof, new life look like? That's good. Um, That's so I good. think it's also a fear of unknown. It's kind of like we're stepping off a cliff, but we don't really. Is it really, really going to be as good as Jesus you claim it's going to be? Yeah. Or am I just going to be looking with regret back to my rad party life yeah. at 24? And I think. That's good. Um, I think people can relate to that. Yeah, and I think for me, what it, I gained is one, I was also in a, I could keep doing the same things, but I, I realized I didn't really like who I was. I didn't, I wasn't on, I wasn't in love with just who I was in that season mm. or drinking or whatever it may be. I didn't love that. And I felt like God was giving me an opportunity to become who I really wanted to become. I think that's for me choosing to release things is because I want something more. I want yeah. something of who God's called me to be more than what I have currently. That makes sense. So That's I good. think it was, I knew he opened the door for so many things with healing, um, new perspective, a different reality, priorities. Like it opened the door for everything. And it wasn't just that one thing. Like I said, it was just kind of the tip of the iceberg. That's, that's good. But, Kel, thank yeah. you. What about you, Nick? Well, yeah, I've just been reflecting as I've been listening, you know, um, I think it's in Psalm 115 and 135, it says that we become like the gods that we worship. And I think that um, there's, uh, idolatry looks different for all of us, you know, at that time in, in your life, it was, a, it was a thing for you, you're grappling with there. Um, but idols in and of themselves need not necessarily be uh, bad or, or inherently evil things. They can be good things that have taken the place of the ultimate thing, as Tim Keller says, you know. And so I remember just when you asked about lordship uh, um, earlier, um, a time when I was driving down the road, a uh, sort of lonely stretch of road, and, uh, and, and Jesus' authority was brought home to me. Um, I mean, he, he's the image of the invisible God. He's a firstborn over all creation. With him, as my dad used to say, Jesus is either Lord of all mm. or he's not Lord at all, right? And uh, I was driving down the road and funnily enough, I had the worship music on, which is about the decibel level where my own worship becomes sanctified, where I can't hear myself. And I'm driving down the road and I was just praising God and, and I just started thanking him for things, thanking him for my family, for my wonderful wife, 25 years, and just, just praising him and thanking him. And um, 
as I was driving, I had such a sense that God just sort of dropped into my spirit. He, he said, uh, but do you love them more than me? And um, it was a very hard thing because uh, I, I think that for those of us who love our families, and God has put that in us, God's put that love in us. It's a wonderful redemptive thing, right? But, mm. but even that can take the place of the ultimate thing. And it got to the place where I actually had to pull over the car and, um, and I, was, I was weeping like they call it ugly crying, you know, when the snot comes down and all the stuff, you know. And I, I finally was able to get to the place where I said, Lord, um, I don't want you to take them from me. But in my heart, at least for now, um, I, I can say, yes, I would follow you even if you took them from me. And praise God he hasn't and I hope that he won't. Mm. Of course, I hope he won't. But what I'm really saying is um, with Jesus, his lordship, you touched on this in your sermon. With Jesus, his, his lordship is everything. Compared, compared to him being the one that we love and adore and serve, um, everything else pales into comparison uh, to that. that that's, I love the contrast. So like on the one hand, there's this idea, there are things in our life that we want to be freed from. And Jesus comes with his authority to free us from the things that we, we ourselves already know we want freedom from. But then also Jesus comes with his authority to lay claim on things that we don't want to uh, bring subordinate to God. We don't want God to be bigger than our families. In a sense, sometimes we want to hold on to those things more than God. And I think that's really important. I think the other thing that's really significant is the earlier point about his use of authority and how Jesus uses his authority to heal, to serve, and to reconnect people to God. And I want to just take a moment and pause and turn to the audience and just talk about what that means for you. What does it look like for you to surrender yourself to Jesus' authority in your life? Maybe it's something like what Nick is saying. It's something that is a good thing. It's a gift from God, but God wants to reassert the centrality of his place in your life. Because when he's at the center, everything finds its proper place. Maybe for others of us, there are habits, thoughts, processes, or experiences in our life that we do want freedom from. We want his authority to help us with. But all that to say is, it begins by opening our heart to Jesus and welcoming that authority. And I want to just give you a chance to do that right now. For some of us, maybe you've never accepted Jesus and his authority into your life to begin with. And if you'd like to do that, I want to invite you to pray with me right now. Close your eyes just for a moment. Even if you're sitting there alone, just close your eyes. And I want you just to picture Jesus coming to you. He's coming to you in humility, in gentleness, but in authority and with the power to free you from everything that holds you back from being in relationship with God and being your true self. I want to invite you to pray this simple prayer. Jesus, I open my heart to you to have authority over my life, over every part of my life so that God can fill every part of my life. And in Jesus' name, I pray the blessing of God's forgiveness over you. I pray the blessing of God's grace over you. And I bless you to have a sense of God's nearness to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for joining us and helping us dig into this. And thank you for sharing so personally and vulnerably.
in response to Jesus's radical love, in response to this incredible humility and yet um, authoritative person, this person who comes into our life with both the power to absolutely and totally free us and heal us, but also um, the authority to lay claim over every area of our life, I want to lead us into a time of communion. Never is, is communion more appropriate than in the week um, of Holy Week, where we're really taking time to meditate and pause on the significance of his death and his resurrection. So I want to give you a moment right now to, to get up from wherever you're sitting and go get some bread or something that can serve as the body of Christ and, and uh, something to represent Jesus's blood. And then we're going to go through communion together. Okay, so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he held up uh, this bread in front of all his disciples, the last meal that he shared with them. On the eve of before he was betrayed and rejected and brought into trial and crucified, Jesus took this bread and he tore it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And when we eat this, we eat it in remembrance of his body broken for us so that we in our lives and our entire lives could be restored to relationship with God. I want to invite you right now to go ahead and to take a bite of the bread and in remembrance of Jesus' death for you. He held up the cup with the wine and he said, this represents my blood, the cup of the new covenant. He shed his blood to cleanse us from all our sin, to cleanse us from anything and everything that could stand between us and God. There's nothing in your past, nothing in your present, nothing in your future that has the right to stand between you and your maker and your father in heaven. And as we drink this together, we do it remembering Jesus' sacrifice for us and remembering that his forgiveness fills us and cleanses us of all sin. Let's drink of the cup together. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your death and resurrection through your son, Jesus. Thank you, God, that you so love the world that you sent your only begotten son that all who believe in him would never perish. And Jesus, we thank you that you use your authority not to force submission, but you use your authority to woo us back to the heart of the Father. You use your authority to lay down your own life so that, God, we could be restored in relationship to you. I pray and bless everyone listening and watching today to be filled afresh with your love and your grace and the wonder of your sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Savior say thy strength indeed is small child of weakness watch and pray find in me thine all in all Jesus paid it all all to him I owe for sin a crimson stain, but he washed 
wash me white as snow And I will never be the same Before you all go, I want to give you a blessing. So if you could just bow your heads and your hearts, and I'm going to pray a blessing on you. This comes from Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. I bless you guys to go this week in the fullness of God's love for you. May you recognize his, his movements of authority in your life and may you have the grace to respond with surrender to him. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.